To support our work at the Izzy and Mortada Picture Show and the work of other independent creators like us, sign up to listen to the podcast on Nebula. Nebula is the creator-owned streaming platform that hosts great videos and podcasts like the one you're listening to now. Sign up today at nebula.tv slash picture show, and you will get access to this podcast plus other great podcasts and videos. Sign up at Nebula and help support independent media creators. That's nebula.tv slash picture show. Hi, I'm Mortada. And I'm Izzy. And this is the Izzy and Mortada Picture Show. And we're so pleased today to welcome Anna Bogutskaya, the author of Unlikable Female Characters, the women in pop cu- the women pop culture loves to hate. Is that correct? Yes. The woman pop culture wants, wants you, to, you hate. to hate. Wants you to hate. There you go. Um Thank you so much for being here. I absolutely loved this book um, and I'm so excited to talk to you about it. Um, So I guess first things first, let's just get some background on it. Tell me about what drew you to this subject and how you came to actually write a book about it. So I think uh, I tell the story in the book about how I was given a a book when I was a teenager uh, that was basically an instruction manual for girls specifically. I got I got all huffy about it. I was like, "Is this like where's the where's the rule book for the boys? What sort of nonsense is this?" I probably did actually say those words, just like you know, <laughs> in Russian. Uh, <laughs> but I remember be, it, that was the first time I genuinely noticed how different rules applied to boys versus girls. Uh, we all knows what those are but then once I started working and I was working as a film programmer for Cinematech here in London um, there was a program that I did that was kind of an early iteration of these ideas it's when I really started thinking about who are these characters and like trying to as I was going through the development process of that season kind of looking at film history and obviously when you're writing versus when you're programming the considerations are very different Mm -hmm. there's not as much like practicalities in terms of sort of rights and and materials available or just the the same commercial impetus of you know you have to sell you have to get people to show up you know you can't just show the things that work for your thesis you have to think about kind of people coming to the cinema as well but as my just research list grew longer and longer and longer I just sort of started re-looking at revisiting certain films and thinking about certain movie stars and their personas differently and that season had a very different title but because it was very much looking at kind of bitchy characters on screen but even during that process, my then boss uh, sort of just offhandedly made this comment like, oh, I think maybe there's a book in this. And then that was the seed planted and it never let me go. And then the pandemic happened and I had for the first time in my working life kind of a lot of time sitting at home by myself. And I'd always wanted to write both sort of longer form essays and books but I never had the time. 
and I never had the to be very honest kind of the the self uh, self-awareness or self-honesty to be like you know what just try it and maybe you'll fail and if you'll fail that's fine that's also okay but at least you will have tried and you know the, I think the pandemia made us all feel like well we might as well why not uh so I remembered kind of those words and I revisited some of my research from that programming project and developed it out into into a book proposal so that's a kind of a, a long-winded answer to your question where it started when I <laughs> got very annoyed with my parents telling me what to do <laughs> <laughs> well you talk about because you program that series and mm-hmm. it you talk about in the book how it had a very controversial title do you want to talk about the blowback of of that title a little bit um and how that influenced maybe how the book came to be well, uh, it didn't actually influence the way the book came to be. Um, it was generally, it, they're very different projects. Uh, mm-hmm. So that season was called Playing the Bitch, which was, oh, okay, um, okay. you know, controversial because of the use of the B word and yeah. because of the cinema where I was programming at that time. But as a season, the people that came to those screenings, and we had um, kind of, we organized several sort of, discursive debate kind of uh events where people mm-hmm. were very much exploring themselves and hashing out in a public discursive setting why they were annoyed at the use of that word and there were it was essentially 50 50 there were people and most of this audience were women mm-hmm. there was people who had really strong feelings pro the the bitch word and very strong and other people had very strong feelings against both were completely valid yeah and actually pro- probably some of the most fascinating debates I've ever witnessed because I was watching them but not really participating because it wasn't my uh, that was not a spot for me to like you know tell my side my side was mm-hmm. already the program uh genuinely some of the most interesting and what's the word I'm looking for fiery debate i love that (laughs) because this is the thing like two things can be true at once people can find the word and uh, one of the there was that's actually one of the ways that that experience informed which was very traumatic in a different way (laughs) uh definitely informed the book is that each chapter as you guys all know is titled with uh quite a contentious word so there's yeah. a chapter that's called the slut there's a chapter that's called the shrew <laughs> yeah like even you know angry women i find that quite contentious might be might not be for other people or like the train wreck mm-hmm. these yeah. are all words that i very very deliberately chose because of the the connotations that they have especially for women and i don't you know i don't side either way on the complete reclamation of some of those words because they're mm-hmm. all different some people feel like the word bitch has been reclaimed others categorically don't feel that way mm-hmm. same thing applies to slut and some of the other words kind of carry uh, a slightly less insulting weight to them mm-hmm. but I think that's part and parcel when discussing tropes like this that there those those experiences that audiences have you know ourselves here included are completely valid people can be really offended by the use of certain words because they were meant to be offensive and they yeah. are still in many situations yeah. So I think that that was one of the things I definitely took from that programming experience into the writing of the book. I'm like, I need, I, wherever I sit, 
about my own personal relationship with these words people like readers need to know that I fully understand that this might be contentious for some people and not for others and sometimes for the same person at the same time which is where I usually find myself yeah so I wanted to ask I wanted to ask you about you know looking at writing the book and choosing examples can you tell us for example you know what how do you chose an example for the slot or for the train wreck what was sort of like your winding down process and maybe if you can tell us well I chose that because this because sometimes these things just happen you know it's the one you know the most about right yeah so I I really wanted to write this not for my film critic pals I mm. I don't you know I don't need to tell you or I don't need to tell my fellow film critics or cinephile nerds who what the Hayes Code is I don't need to explain to them who Mae West was or like who Betty Davis was these are kind of like I don't assume knowledge from anyone or I really kind of always remind myself not to assume knowledge even when I'm doing this kind of stuff or podcasting or speaking in public but you you kind of can with some people who have dedicated themselves to film and film history, right? But I very deliberately wrote this and chose the films and this series that I'm writing about, thinking about someone who's never in their lives picked up a book about films or film history, or who does not watch video essays every day about film <laughs> history, and who does not watch every <laughs> single, like, you know, uses the vpn to like watch pbs documentaries about old hollywood stars yeah (laughs) yeah that's so funny yeah i love it that's (laughs) that's part of why i liked it so much too is because it's like i i love books like this but then i'm also there are moments when i'll read a book that's you can kind of tell they're trying to show off it's like here's this thing from 1973 that you've never heard of in your (laughs) life and you're like I'm gonna talk about Villanelle actually yeah it's so funny (laughs) that is very accessible thank you I really I I deliberately was like I could write about Wanda like for sure Wanda fits in this in some way although I mean she's way more complex but I'm like but Mm -hmm. what if someone who reads this has never heard of this one film and doesn't even know where to find it or what if they you know I could write about some like obscure 1980s Spanish movie that I love that is very accessible in Spain but that maybe no one in the US or the UK has ever heard of yeah so like I I picked the film I kind of used an anchor film or an anchor show for each chapter that I kind of spent a bit more time on. And then I sort of um, went from that, kind of trying to look at a bit of more historical um, uh, historical representation, kind of movies, or mostly movies as opposed to shows. But And then looking at at least one thing that is very, very contemporary. So in each chapter, there'll be something that, you know, comes from a streamer or that's had like a massive uh pop culture impact like a killing eve or like a sex education or like Mm. sex in a city so one of my favorite chapters to write was actually the slot chapter because i got to bounce from sex in a city to may west to madonna to um you know like a little bit of sex education but not that much so it was that kind of balance that i was looking for something that people would know Mm -hmm. that they had maybe not thought about in these terms uh, and something they had never heard of Mm -hmm. and perhaps someone that was kind of more um, historical uh, that might be very familiar for film historians or film critics but that again people who know Samantha Jones and know Villanelle and know Madonna might not have 
um considered in in relationship to those or even you know like someone who loves or maybe someone who like loves madonna but has never seen her 1993 erotic thriller body of evidence (laughs) crazy film crazy yes. film i've never looked at candles the same way again oh my god that would be so crazy yeah, or I willem know. dafoe yeah <laughs> true some of the things that david fincher has said about that man make you make you look at him differently yeah if you so know funny. you know yeah. <laughs> um so one of the things that you return to kind of again and again you've been asked about this a lot in interviews is like how do you even come to define unlikability because it's such a nebulous term and it's kind of undefinable and it changes all the time. And it also depends on what community you're talking about, you know? Um, And I'm wondering how you kind of set the standard of unlikability for what you were talking about. Like how did you define it in your head when you were saying, Oh, this character has been considered unlikable or this character did this thing that was unlikable. What were you thinking about? Well, I spend the entire book trying to define what the hell that means. Um, part of it also comes from sort of living life uh, as a as a woman and be like, what was this? Does this make me unlikable if I do this? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, what if I don't put an exclamation mark in an email? Will it will it make <laughs> me sound too mean? Uh, but uh, I think that's why the structure came out the structure came out of trying to define something that is so big and so nebulous and so uh, full of connotations and implications and no certainties and something that nobody even speaking with people about the project um you know speaking with my agent and you know when we were work working on the proposal it it, it was impossible to define so actually the structure came from trying to break down okay well what does it mean if uh, if a woman is a slut what does that mean it means that we don't like her because she's slutty and what does that mean it's because she's promiscuous or because she just likes it's not even if she sleeps with too many people it's because she actually enjoys the act of sex whatever that might mean so can she be slutty but also not sleep around you know so it was all kind of trying to break down okay well what does a bitch mean what does a bitch act like what does she look like does she speak in a certain way how does she carry herself what does she look like in pop culture and similarly with a train wreck you know what is it what does that look like is there such a thing as too much fun Uh, when is a train wreck tragic by definition is there a relationship between those two so it's a lot of kind of going from the two too much of something Mm -hmm. and also at the same time not enough of something else Mm -hmm. and those two things always battling at each other with each other when we call and all of those all of those con all of those nuances that nobody talks about existing at the same time and because that seems like way too there's another version of this book that includes real life women uh, that very early on, I decided that I did not want to go down that rabbit hole because A, I think the pr- the research project would have been uh, much more, much different. Uh, and I, I do feel like a different kind of responsibility to real life people versus fictional characters. And there was a couple of um, editors who, you know, might have 
bought the book if it had become something that dealt with real life women especially considering the big era of malign women from recent history that we've been going through it's like oh can you put some Britney in there and then we've got a book but there's it's a different process so I really wanted to make sure that I'm I was I was completely focused on fictional characters and occasionally on the actresses, the real life actresses who portrayed them. But that was going to be the self-imposed limitation for that, precisely because of how those definitions of unlikable and the real life consequences that that might involve, like being socially ostracized or much, much, much worse than just not having people speak to you. Uh, can have happened and are still happening over and over again to real life women. So I think that's someone someone else should write that book, and I'd really look, I'd really <laughs> love to read it. Yeah. So I really love your book because as a gay man who loves melodrama, my favorite genre is women unraveling on screen. So you can start with Blanche Dubois and throughout the years, all her sisters, cousins and daughters, you know, there's always <laughs> there's always someone, right? Or any performance by Jenna Rollins. So I yes. wanted to ask, um, I wanted to ask you about these wonderful women that, you know, gay men like me gravitate towards. And these, this is who we want to be. This is who we put as our heroes, um, right? And so why do you think that hap- that is when the rest of the culture maybe sees them are as anti-heroes or unlikable? Wait. I think, and correct me if I'm if I'm misinterpreting you. You're referring to kind of this uh, the crazy woman, yes, and especially kind of the mad woman. And what you yes. know, Angelica J. Bastien at Vulture is like one of my favorite living critics. Oh my gosh, her articles about those six... are incredible. Yeah, yeah like I if you like, uh, like if you think of yeah. Blanche, she's always unraveling, right? There's something's wrong, but she's always yes. so fascinating to to watch. And you know, you know, all those you know all those women, any Almodovar woman is also has a little bit of Blanche in her. So Listen, I've almost finished <laughs> there, his there book is. of stories. <laughs> uh, no, I, I was actually about to mention him because obviously he's also massively influenced by Tennessee Williams mm-hmm. and it's specifically Gina Rowland's performances in opening night and Women on the Verge of an, uh, well, Oh God! Now I'm mixing up a lot of our women under the influence. Women under the influence. Women under the influence, not women on the verge. I literally did that like two days ago. I googled (laughs) it and I was like, "That's not Almodovar." I had to rethink it. But I think with melodrama and you know with more contemporary melodrama filmmakers like Almodovar, like Todd Haynes, there is something so watchable about a face. Uh, of someone unraveling from the inside out and it tends to be women why because men on screen have not been afforded the possibility of their interiority being as explosive and important as the things they can do with the outside being like oh well we can go to war and that's very intense and we have (laughs) things to worry about where there's a woman usually in especially like in in the melodrama tradition stuff is happening on the inside Maybe all that's happened is a conversation with her lover or her mother or whatnot. But the the stuff that's going on inside and on the the performer's face is bombastic. Mm -hmm. So I think there's something unbelievably watchable and validating 
And I think the validating thing is maybe the thing that you're alluding to of seeing someone feel intensely in close up and on the big screen. I remember actually doing, I think it was translating for a Q and a or an interview with, with Pedro Almodovar. I can't remember what the context was, but he mentioned needing to see people in the big screen, you know, Mm. and especially Penelope's face. And he's like, how can you, you know, not, fall in love and want to watch that face on the biggest mm-hmm. screen possible mm-hmm. that's drama right like you put um i was re-watching uh, a Wong Kar Wai movie in the cinema for the first time in a while uh and you know tony lung's face comes on screen i'm like i don't need anything else yeah. i don't need a I don't need fireworks. I don't need a gun. I don't need any plot. I just need that face on the screen feeling Mm -hmm. things very intensely. So I think with that kind of the crazy woman archetype with the mad woman that, um, you know, Angelica writes so so beautifully about, there is something so that I think allows us as viewers permission to feel because Mm -hmm. we see it no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what the, your actual identity is, mm-hmm. there is kind of this permission to feel intensely and profoundly and in a way that is um, out of bounds almost with the norms that we all grow up with, which will be very different depending on our community, where we grow up, how we grow up with who. But it's always about containment and control, right? It's always about don't show don't feel and if you're Mm -hmm. feeling make sure that nobody knows what you're feeling exactly so i don't know about you but this is what i always think and feel when i see these kind of movies i'm like oh my god i wish i wish i was that free yeah to feel so like um, everything that's got happening to them is felt so unbelievably strongly which must be excruciating as well to exist like that constantly yeah Totally. <laughs> like, you know, Mission Impossible is out this week. Tom Cruise jumping off a cliff. Fun. But I never feel anything visceral like when I see Jenna Rollins or yeah. Kate Blanchett or Betty Davis just yes. filling the screen with emotion and they're just bubbling at the surface. That's sort of like vo- these volcanic emotions that are just so amazing to watch. I'm like, that's who I want to be. That's who I want to watch. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting how it kind of inter unlikability kind of interacts with camp. And I know like you obviously mm-hmm. have been working a lot on on exploitation and hag horror and all of that kind of stuff. And I feel like there's that kind of class of character that is their unlikability is the likable thing about them. Um, so I mean, how do, how has uh, this book been in conversation with some of your work about horror, do you think? Well, it's a it's an interesting question that has it's there's two answers to that. One, I made the very deliberate choice not to include horror in this one, mm. partly selfishly because I'm the next one is about all about horror, so I'm writing that one at the moment, and I wanted to save all my ideas for that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the the other main reason is because, and and I'm sure you know this, I, I harp on about this constantly, that I just think that horror is a genre that sits to the side of the norms of kind of mainstream cinema, because horror has always been a genre of excess and excessive emotion and lack of restraint. So the women in horror, be that kind of a hag horror from the 60s and 70s and 
slasher films and which films, all the different subgenres, the female characters there, especially older women, have always had this wealth of kind of excessive mannerisms and characters and storylines and taboo subjects that you know are never spoken or named directly but that are explored thematically and subtextually so it's just a genre that kind of sits almost to the side of unlikability because it's both very binary and that like oh you're the hero and you're the villain or the monster and whatnot but with horror, the monsters are the ones that we remember, right? Those are the mm -hmm. ones that become pop culture icons. They're the ones who's we wear on the on the t-shirts and get tattoos off and all that stuff. Who was the like who I don't remember any, I mean I do remember, but you know, <laughs> the, for for the purposes of this argument, I know what the names are of the victims of of Freddy Krueger, but I know who right. Fred is. He's yeah. the protagonist of the entire franchise. And so is, you know, Jason, although really it should be his mom, but still, you know, <laughs> people always forget her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I don't know if that answers your question because like with um with horror film, I think kind of there's a it it sort of a goes off on a tangent with it because it's always allowed so much room to breathe and to contort almost. Um but then with um with kind of more mainstream stuff and and camp, I think that comes in that comes in afterwards, right? I mean, I don't know what you think, but I do feel like when something is deliberately trying to go after kind of a camp um sensibility, it always almost always fails. Fails. Yeah, yeah. totally. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I feel yeah. like I mean, I feel like there are very, very rare examples, like early mm -hmm. American horror story before oh, it kind yeah. of trailed off you know <laughs> yeah but yeah i totally agree with that um but i think i mean that's what's interesting too is because i think the internet changes so much of how we perceive these like how many scenes do you remember actually from american horror story versus how many clips or like memes or gifs mm -hmm. that these things that kind of live on for kind of their bitchiness i guess is really what it is yeah. um i mean how did you kind of incorporate the the second lives of these kinds of things where they, they take off on the internet or people um come to movies 30 years later and now you know they have a completely different interpretation uh was that really challenging when you were researching it well not the challenge with that sort of stuff is just the volume of it it's because you know you can't possibly quantify how many variations of the uh get in loser we're going shopping meme there is <laughs> mm -hmm. or how many people have reinterpreted regina george's like snide like snide um like skirt comments or the you know you thought you surprise bitch meme yeah, that exactly. came out of season three of american horror story it's like it's you can trace the origin point you can't trace all the iteration of iterations of it but what is interesting, and some of the kind of more mainstream, very familiar films that I write about, you know, stuff like Devil Was Prada, stuff like Mean Girls, has been, uh, that has informed part of the research, not just in my own thinking of it, because the, there's several layers to that, because you can, you know, I remember watching Mean Girls as a teenager, and then revisiting it and be like, ooh, that's, uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of bad shit in there. Yeah, <laughs> and totally. Then, 
and then kind of also engaging with um with the memes and also with other commentators who have also revisited stuff and similarly with much older movies or different shows that might have been um criticized or sort of misinterpreted at the time and then gain another life because of who is now watching them so both of those reactions I find really interesting in the way that people kind of look back at stuff or it may perhaps it's rediscovered because it becomes available in streaming or because I don't know there's a re um re critical reassessment of stuff or stuff is you know released on criterion or just simply made available um afresh to to new audiences so that's definitely come into it I don't know how to write about memes in a great way in a non-visual way because they are so visual yeah. have you ever tried to describe a meme in a footnote because that is an unholy <laughs> exercise yeah <laughs> well you're yeah. kind of queen of footnotes now I think <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much because I love excellent footnotes, footnotes. <laughs> yeah um well i i think that i'm kind of torn on how the the current likability i don't know measurement goes with audiences now because on the one hand i think if someone writes a character that is generally likable it's it kind of means that they're like in the way that when someone says being night being called nice is kind of an insult because yeah. <laughs> it just means you're a little boring you know it's like you can kind of cross that threshold where it's like not even a good thing to be likable anymore but on this other hand I feel like there's such a moralistic streak in audiences where they want someone to be always making the correct decision and if they're not then that means that they're bad and it's mm -hmm. not worth your time and all of that kind of stuff um do you kind of see those things as being related or do you agree with those that interpretation how are you kind of thinking about these well, things I'm well, the, it's a, it's a, <coughs> excuse me, it's an interesting position to observe because on one hand, and I think I, I end the book with this sort of thought of why am I even writing this? This seems passe at this point in time. And then obviously because publishing is really slow, the book comes out a year after I wrote that and it feels even more passe and at the same time, absolutely not because I'm still getting notifications of articles about unlikable female characters and you know like what that means and uh and you know the rise and the fall and the rise again of unlikable female characters and interviews and where that word keeps coming up and people I know who make work in the film and tv industry who tell me that like that work comes up in meetings, in development meetings, in production meetings, where they're like, oh, I didn't get this film, or I almost didn't get this film done because my protagonist, I was told that my protagonist was too unlikable. And I'm like, what? Still? <laughs> yeah, that's really shocking. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So then, then I think, oh, maybe it's not passe. Maybe it is literally still happening a yeah. year, two years after I finished this. And, you know, I am i don't think the book is going to change anything. But I do think that it kind of reminds us the fact that is shouldn't we all be done with this now? And yet we're not. Mm -hmm. However, to your point, what's really interesting is that I do feel like a little while ago, kind of maybe in the brief reign of the girl boss, uh, <laughs> there was this like 
almost marketed and designed unlikability. And I think both Girl Boss the show and Cruella the movie are perfect examples of this. Yeah. Or where they were like selling you on a character who was presented as being like really bitchy and really mean, just evil, mad. I think those are literally the the slogans of um yeah. of Cruella. Like speaking and of camp that doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. It was so purple. I mean the outfits yeah. were gorgeous. Gorgeous. Yeah, but everything cop- was so yeah it was so deliberately kind of like oh look at me I don't care what people think I'm so unlikable and such a bitch I'm like no you're not you're Emma Stone like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so- and then it's like it's like Joan Jett starts playing and you're like whoa yeah. <laughs> it's like oh she's got a bad reputation <laughs> <laughs> so this actually uh prompts me to ask you Anna about stars who choose throughout their career to play these unlikable roles. Like I can think mm. of no one who has done it better than Betty Davis, who I love. Um, someone else is the original Cruella, Glenn Close, who has Bless a few you. iconic unlikable characters. Um, do you think, and you know, we were talking about public perception. Do you think mm. sort of when they are known for these roles, what is the public perception of them? Does it bleed into how the public perceives them? And where does sort of, you know, where does the, where do you draw the line? Um, I think that's such an interesting point. And I mean, is it your video essays on Betty Davis or you know this more than anyone (laughs) about how that bled into her public persona uh, and Joan Crawford's as well. But I think kind of thinking of more contemporary people, Glenn is one of the most interesting performers because she that has never bled into the way that we mm-hmm. see her as an actor or mm. as a movie star. And you could argue as well-known and accomplished and honestly give the woman an Oscar already uh, kind of actors that, of her generation. She doesn't kind of have a specific movie star persona. She's mm-hmm. always been an actor. She blends into the role. You know, she, um, she, is mentioned many times throughout the book and you know i wish i could have written a bit more about the wife because i love that performance um in her in her later career you never think of her as corella if anything you a lot of people associate her with alex forrest but then yeah she also can be extremely warm and witty and um sort of the 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 straight man or the um, the hero of the story yeah. the put upon women as well she's quite chameleonic and she doesn't have in the way that Betty had mm-hmm. a personality off screen that we can say oh she's so like Cruella because yeah. she, she just doesn't you know she lives her life and she's happy I hope she's happy yeah she's um, just doing like little Instagram videos on her porch yeah. in Connecticut <laughs> it's so I, cute and <laughs> maybe one of the things that one of the people I find really interesting in that regard is Lena Dunham because people have a lot of opinions about her mm-hmm. because she has put so much more of herself out there and has created yeah. a persona that is very unlikable yeah. uh, for almost anyone. And there is a real sort of like erasure of the, um, of the line between who she is as a person or at mm-hmm. least her public persona that she lets us see. Mm-hmm. And the character that she wrote and plays in Girls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's one of the most um, tense persona character relationships that we've had over the last like 15 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel I- like there's there's kind of a tension too 
when you, when those, when that line is so blurred, because I feel like that also not to the same extent happened a little bit with the broad city girls or sort of like, not that they ever did anything that was so controversial or anything like that, but it's, it gets tiring after a while because Mm -hmm. you get so pigeonholed into that thing. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe the rise of sort of like the actor, you know, the chameleonic actor in the 50s through the 70s, maybe that sort of helped people like Glenn Close maintain their their sort of persona as an actor first and not a pers- not an actual screen persona or a celebrity or, you know, because, you know, Meryl doesn't play as many um as many uh, villains or unlikable people as Glenn, for example, they are of the same generation. But I think we see them as the same, these nicer, older women who we love to watch and see in movies. But I don't think I ever think about Meryl's personal life or anything except when one of her daughters appears in something. And that's it. Literally. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. 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 Same. I like that Glenn Close finds flexibility within that because like there are elements of each of her characters that are quote like quote unquote I guess could be considered unlikable but like the difference between Alex or even Norma Desmond who she does on stage Mm. or the wife or all of these characters there's so much difference and nuance in each of them Mm -hmm. so it's kind of like I mean she kind of redefines it in a whole other way yeah well I think there's something I watched um I read a lot of interviews with her but there's I always think that there's a little bit of nuance that gets missed when you don't hear someone answer and she's done you know quite a lot of sort of speeches or lectures or you know recorded interviews and especially around Alex because she gets asked uh has been asked a lot about this character there is always this unwavering empathy that she has for every single character she's played so when she talks about her entire career you know from Alex Forrest to Albert Nobbs to even Cruella who she jokes is like the only truly unempathetic character she's played there is there is always a lot of respect from her side Mm -hmm. towards the character that she plays. She never minimizes them. She never talks down to them. She's always done so much work so that there's a lot more character that exists on the screen than what I quite can quite confidently and maybe erroneously sort of think was actually on the page, especially Mm -hmm. with Fatal Attraction. Like that character I think has persisted mostly because of her performance and how she truly just breathe life into what would have been a stock character yeah i love that they're they're rebooting so many of her roles and like each time you just are reminded of how powerful she is yeah Uh, well who's an unlikable character that you think still gets an unfair shake that you want to see kind of a redemption tour for well i kind of think I kind of think Alex Forrest might be one of the ones that I keep like defending, partly because, you know, of the new um, limited series reboot, which I watched and I just I was kind of disappointed again by it because I, I don't know if you guys have seen it. I don't no. want to spoil it for you. No, no, you can spoil it. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> not, I, I won't I won't go into details, but I was just really surprised that for a show made in you know 2022 2023 with all at least a whole new language that we've gained uh an understanding of what mental illness looks like or how people can be failed by systems that we still did that Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's what kind of was this disappointment for me i was like oh so 
we and Glenn Close has said for I think like decades that she's always wanted to see a version of the story made from Alex's point of view. And I really had a lot of high hopes thinking, oh, we're, she's going to get the 10 hour treatment. We're going to see this story from at least both points of view. And it wasn't that. It was essentially a wrapped in therapy speak, same kind of thing as in 1987. And that was just a huge, a huge disappointment. Yeah. Considering just is... how villainized she was. Yeah, that is disappointing. Um. I had a question for you as a follow-up to my public perception question, but I think you might maybe answered it. But anyway, I'll ask it and we'll see if you have a different answer. So in so we are we're in these sort of like stand times, right? Like people stand people all the time online. So the flip side of that is sort of like who gets villainized and what are the mm. attributes that get villainized online? I think maybe Alina Dunham, when you mentioned her, I'm like, you know what? That's like a good example of like a persona that gets villainized. But I don't know if you if you had a different person or you had sort of if you want to expand on like who do we villainize these days? Oh, that's so interesting. Real people or fictional characters? I mean, either fictional, since your book is about fictional characters. <laughs> um, I I think what gets villainized now, but that's sort of coming back, I think Barbie is playing a really big role in this, is the sort of the flighty, superficial, kind of hyper femme kind of characters, kind mm. of the the bimbo kind kind of character, mm. uh, which I don't write about in the book. I do a little bit, but I think she's so emblematic of the two thousands, of the really really toxic, really misogynistic two thousands, mm. and that has kind of sort of bled into social media uh, influencers. Some of the the kind of especially really young, really, you know, hyper feminine, interested in girly girl things, um, influences that I've seen that have gotten just demonized mm-hmm. uh in a in a huge way. And that and then we include kind of is it like is it straight women? Is it a woman of color? Is it trans women who then get like piled on in an extra aggressive kind of way mm-hmm. because you know then we're suddenly policing femininity and hyper and like interest in hyper feminine stuff so i think it's not so much in in because pop culture has now become social media culture as well so those are yeah. all very linked um there is like a an extra pile of bile i think for um people who are interested in really in just feminine pursuits or whatever that might be that might be clothes or makeup or kind of glamour mm-hmm. or whatever the act or of that is or how that's presented and and they have been kind of I think villainized from both sides for mm-hmm. for being like too feminine and also mm-hmm. somehow failing at being a woman despite being too feminine mm, interesting and yeah, and, and and I at the same time, there's been a really positive, really kind of uh, politically minded reclamation of just kind of bimbo core and being girly girl and kind of mm-hmm. the kindness that goes with that and letting people live their lives who are not hurting anyone just because they enjoy the wor- the color pink or wearing <laughs> yeah. like flashy um, short dresses. Good for them. Let them yeah. live. Yeah. Exactly. Um, exactly. 
I'm a man, so maybe I shouldn't say anything. But I see like when you were talking about that, it reminded me that people I see on social media really love when famous actresses wear suits. So maybe that's like the flip side of what you were talking about of like the extra, the extra femininity. <laughs> I mean, I love it, but Kim Blanchett wears suits. Like, yeah. good Lord, if I could pull off a suit the way that she does. No one can. No uh. one can. <laughs> um, so I guess last question for you um, before we get to our little send off thing. Um, what do you hope, how do you hope that your book influences the way that people are kind of reading their everyday media consumption? Um, I hope that people who read my book have never read or don't read sort of film criticism or essays or engage with video essays or podcasts might discover a few. Um, I know I'll quote your channel in the book um, thank you, thank and a you couple of others, <laughs> but they're, I think kind of just engaging with cultural criticism would be a big, a big thing for me. Um, I do believe it is, I mean, I, I, I'm a huge consumer of cultural criticism, like all day, every day. I think it should be accessible. It should not be just an academic exercise. And I would like that. I would like the book to be an invitation for people to engage with it and to, and to know that it's not all academic, it's not exclusive, and it's not, uh, meant to make you feel bad because they haven't seen or read everything because no one has, um, I think that would be the the main thing. And then obviously kind of more to the topic, I would like people to kind of consider what they have seen already and what they like and the con and you know how sometimes the the intentions of those movies um or those shows, how they kind of present certain characters uh might be setting them up kind of for ridicule and why do they deserve ridicule um so kind of think uh think perhaps be a bit more considerate about the knee-jerk reaction of oh i just hate her oh, i just don't <laughs> like her mm -hmm. because yeah. it is a knee-jerk reaction you, it, it is, is kind of an instinct totally. yeah. but yeah. that instinct is informed by all these little bits of information that we've been given that we've absorbed as a way to protect ourselves from being disliked so you know you speak in a certain way or you write your emails in a certain way or you speak less or you don't um i don't know like don't sleep, you're not promiscuous or not promiscuous enough or whatever it is you're just constantly policing yourself and policing what you like and who you like as well uh, and how that is expressed in order to never fall into the the category of, oh, I just don't like her. It's just something wrong with her. Can't put yeah. my finger on it. She's just such yeah. a bitch. It's like, spoiler <laughs> alert, someone's going to hate you anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Totally. <laughs> um, so we usually end our show with the one who's done it better than anyone else. The one and only Betty Davis. Um, and it's, it reminded me your answer earlier about, you know, uh, about writing the book for people who maybe don't know the Hays Code or not interested in cultural criticism. It reminded me of this anecdote. Years ago, I was at a party with, and I was talking to this very cute boy flirting up a storm. And I met, I quote Betty Davis, the quote that I'm just about to quote, and blank. And I was like, it's Betty Davis. And he literally said, who is that? <laughs> 
And obviously that the flirting ended immediately, never to be heard from again. Deal breaker. <laughs> Total <laughs> deal you. breaker. So I hope whoever this boy is, I don't know even remember anything about him except that anecdote. He finds your book and reads it and maybe he'll learn <laughs> who Betty Davis is. But um, so we end with Betty's famous quote. What a dump. What is bothering us in the culture this week? Like something you want to dump on, something you don't like. It's your time to rant. It's your oh rant time, God. exactly. So, um, giving you space to make your negative feelings known. Yes. <laughs> Let Betty inspire you on dump on someone or something. <laughs> um, oh I can go God. first if you need some time. Yeah, because I've been having the, such an uncharacteristically positive week. I'm like, oh my God, That's I'm great. ranting all the. What am I? I must hate something this week. Listen, what is if it? you want to say, if you want to say one thing that happened <laughs> that you're like, hell yeah, I love it. We can also be positive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can be like, yeah. wow, what a what a dream. <laughs> I've I've, 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 I've come up with something, but you go first. Okay. Um, I feel like this is mine literally every week, but I don't care. I'm going to name it again, and it is the writer strike and the um horrible article that came out today oh on my deadline God. in which uh the am what is it amt mp um the studio the, is basically the producers the, the executives <laughs> yeah. so that the end game is to allow things to drag on until union members start losing their apartments and losing their houses um so they want the strike to go on for a couple more months they don't want it to negotiate at all and they basically want people to be homeless which is literally evil yeah. Cannot, I mean, that wow. is literal cartoon villainy and I hate it. And I hope that the strike ends soon because the writers got a great deal and these people all get fired. Yeah. Jesus Christ. That's literally like the music execs at the end of the idol being like, we just ruined his life. Lol. <laughs> Wild. I just can't believe the idea that they were like, we are going to put this quote in a major publication the day before the actors are determining whether they're going to strike or not yeah it's just it's it's so gross you know it is you couldn't have written an easier decision for the actors at this point yeah like fuck you it's also a little bit of psychological warfare but i think what i love about it Mm. is that the writers at least the ones i saw online they're like we don't care we we are we know about this they're like we we're in it till the end like you you think you're gonna scare us you you're not scaring us which is yeah yes um i have a you know easy has the big one i have a more like you know just what's happening today the emmys are out um, and while, you know, I mainly write about film, I do watch TV and the Emmys are always sort of disappointing because it seems like they always watch like two shows um, and and two shows get like 17,000 nominations and then the rest of TV, which is a lot. And people, you know, we watch now in silos, there's no mo- monoculture. So everybody watches the show they like. So it can't be that only the actress from Succession and the White Lotus are worthy of acting nominations this year. So my dump is for Emmy voters. Expand what you watch. Don't just watch HBO. You know, watch something else. Find (laughs) other actors or other writers, directors, whatever shows that are worthy of your nomination. So it's not just dominated by three shows. Very, very fair criticism. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right, Anna, um, what about you? So I quoted it earlier. Don't judge me for it. But I'm going to join the the huge public dumping on Sam Levinson and The Weeknd's The Idol. <laughs> because you know what? On the one hand, I want to also, by the way, I spent I wasted two hours of my precious can time watching the first two episodes at the can press screening. Oh, wow. So yeah. that on a big screen. I mean, the reaction of people who were going like like this for the whole two hours was priceless <laughs> um i just I, sometimes i just wonder how things get made right and it's like yeah. so you know you come in and you just say i don't like it and then you just get to fire someone can all the work they did and you just get to make something totally different in your house because mm. it's filmed in the weekend's house which is all sorts of revealing in, a, in ways that I don't think he intended it to be revealing. Mm. Um, now I need to watch it. I'm like, what's in the yeah. weekend? No, you don't. <laughs> you really don't. I've watched so many like YouTuber reactions of this show. <laughs> and every single person is like, I thought I was going to watch this to make like a fun, haha, this is stupid, but I'm having fun because it's so bad video, but it's actually just bad. Oh, okay. And all of them are just like, I wasted my time. <laughs> I just like I, I you know why it makes me angry it's not the fact that it's just bad and uninspired and bless him the weekend I think is a musical genius but he's not an acting genius he's not even a mediocre actor he's just <laughs> terrible he's oh, like no. porn actor levels bad as in like you know hey ma'am here's your pizza but, oh you know, whoa <laughs> um he'll never recover also- from this Anna <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think he's fine. I, uh, although he might actually leave you a negative review because he's been doing a lot of that with people on Twitter. Are you serious? Reacting to, yeah, he's been reacting to people criticizing the show or his performance or doing any kind of comment. And I'm like, sir, you are a millionaire and a pop star. You do not have the time for this shit. Yes. Wow. Do yourself a favor, Abel. Come on. It's oh like my Elon God. Musk behavior. That's crazy. Yeah. No, my my real kind of the the real thing that makes me truly angry about it is that I have a real soft spot for like sleazy art. Like mm. I love Paul Verhoeven. I love like an erotic thriller. Like I think I think it does take something quite special to actually do sleaze well. Like mm. you can't just put, you know, nudity on screen. That doesn't make something sleazy. And I just think the idol is is these are done so badly and so uninspiredly and i'm like why do you just think that putting a naked woman on screen equals sleaze or equals art and it's sometimes both it's neither it's you're just filming your actresses in the nude it, there's nothing there to go on and no characters no plot uh it just it's completely nonsensical and i'm just like we're already having such a tough time with sex in cinema and with eroticism in cinema and tv and everybody's like losing their minds over whether sex scenes are necessary or not like every other month like people just need to you know live their lives and turn off the content (laughs) that they don't want to engage with and if you want to have sex have sex and if you don't don't and if you want to watch it on screen, then do. And if you don't, just don't. You don't yeah. need to cancel all of sex for everyone. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I'm just yeah. annoyed. I'm annoyed because then there's this really like explicit um, like show that's trying to be sleazy and erotic. 
And we failed so badly at doing erotica and at doing sleaze that I'm like, we're just going to go into a cultural drought now. Yeah, like you ruined it for all of us, for everyone else who wants to do it. Like, because it's failed so badly. And I'm like, does it mean that HBO is not going to greenlight another sort of erotic thriller type vibe thing for a decade now? Because that's going to really piss me off. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of because I I know people who've written for HBO before and they basically were like, no, no, they tell us to add these scenes in because like the network's kind of known for it. Yeah. And I but I also feel like there's been less and less of that kind of or it's just very minimal or tasteful compared to what it was in like the 90s or, you know, when you think about Sex in the City, like you described. I mean, on just like that is like the most sex negative show I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. Ah. Although they are trying to do a little bit more sex this season. They did start the season with a sex montage of all the main characters having sex, which is like, I'm like, all right, I guess you're back. But you're right. They're <laughs> like, even Carrie, who was like, you know, talking up the butt in the in the first season or second season. Now she's like, oh, I never gave a thought to come. I'm like, really? Come on. <laughs> there was, I mean, we, we can go on for another hour about how Carrie Bradshaw is the worst sex columnist that ever lived. Well, truly, actually, yeah. I've truly never seen a character who's, who's made a career out of writing around sex who hates sex more. <laughs> yes, totally. <laughs> and wow. this was so wonderful. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. We really enjoyed every minute. Yeah, it was so Thank fun. you both so much. I and- love your insight. And thank you so much for even reading the book. I'm truly, truly um, so uh, both embarrassed to be seen and read <laughs> and thrilled. <laughs> well, you'll have to come back when your next one comes out. Oh, yes. You- for sure. Perfect. Uh, and before we go, let our listeners know where you can they can find you and your work. So you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Anna B. Demented on both. Um, I host the horror history podcast, The Final Girls, which I'm still working on the new season. It's been longer than I expected it to, but that's coming over the next couple of weeks. And you can buy my book anywhere you get your books. And... Uh, you can follow any other kind of journalism or essays that I write. Um, they get published everywhere. So I usually post those on my social channels too. Thank you. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at Emmy underscore says, on Instagram at Mortada underscore E. You can read my criticism at Variety and AV Club. My latest is a very positive review of Tom Cruise's latest film, Mission Impossible, whatever, 17. Um, and that's a daily club. <laughs> uh, and you can find me at BK Rewind on Twitter, BK underscore Rewind on Instagram, and BK Rewind on YouTube. And until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>